Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey, before we start the show today, I want to tell you about something brand new we're launching with our friends at Apple Podcasts called The Ongoing History of New Music Unlimited. For $3.49 a month, $3.49, which is less than the price of your morning coffee, you can now get access to the full archive of our shows ad-free. Plus, you'll get brand new episodes two days early and special bonus episodes. It's Ongoing History Unlimited, and it's available right now only on Apple Podcasts. For centuries, music was nice and clean. While different instruments gave notes different timbres, the frequencies of those notes were expected to be pure and clear. Yes, you could add a little oomph by playing fortissimo, but the dogma was, let's not overdo it. But sometimes the situation called for overdoing things. Banging a piano turns a melody and a beat into some stompin' boogie-woogie. A raspy, hard-blowing saxophone brings energy to a performance. But creating pleasant distortion with either of these instruments, and we can probably name a few others, is limited to the abilities of the human body. Volume and distortion and all the energy that comes with playing this way is restricted by how hard you can hit something or blow into something. The electric guitar had no such limitations. It can be played so that the notes are pristine. Or you can summon all the demons of hell with volume and distortion and power and glory. That is cool. The electric guitar is one of humankind's greatest musical inventions. Starting in the 1950s, it revolutionized many types of popular music. Country, the blues, jazz, and most of all, rock. After it appeared, nothing was ever the same. And the sound of music changed forever. It's impossible to imagine what today's music would sound like had the electric guitar not been invented. But how did we get here? Let's pick up the story. This is the story of the electric guitar, part two. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. That's Big Wreck, featuring guitarist Ian Thornley and The Oaf from 1997. Ian has many, many guitars. And what we're mostly hearing on that song is a Gibson Chet Atkins Tennessean, which is a semi-hollow body guitar. He played this guitar a lot through the late 90s and early 2000s. He also has a signature guitar made by Sir. It's a three-pickup axe with a shape very close to a Stratocaster. It's a Sir Classic S, which has a solid body. In fact, he has a couple of signature guitars from Sir. Ian has also been known to play a Gibson Flying V. We will get to one of those in a second. And a Gibson Les Paul Standard. Stand by for that. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is part two of the history of the electric guitar. Last time, we started right at the very beginning and went through everything that had to happen before the first units were sold in the 1930s. From there, we followed a couple of timelines that brought us to the great Fender guitars like the Telecaster and the Stratocaster in the early 1950s. There was another classic guitar model that appeared at exactly the same time, and this is finally where we get to the Gibson Les Paul. The 1940s saw all kinds of experimentation with electrics. Fender freaked out everyone with the Telecaster, the Stratocaster, and the Fender Precision Bass. Gibson, who had also been fiddling with electrics, realized that Fender had blown past them. 
So the company needed to respond, and fast. But Gibson also had a reputation to uphold. The Tele and the Strat had their necks bolted onto the body. It was much cheaper to make a guitar this way. Gibson insisted that their electric be of finer quality, with a traditional dovetail joint and glue construction when it came to joining the neck to the body. To market this new guitar, Gibson turned to guitarist and inventor Les Paul, who was having a string of hits at the same time. Would he allow Gibson to put his name on a new guitar to help sell it? What do you think? Les agreed, and in June 1952 appeared on stage with his brand new signature guitar, the Les Paul Golden Top. This happened at the Paramount Theater in New York. In 1954, a derivative was announced, the Les Paul Custom, which was also a hollow body, but substantially lighter than the Golden Top. The next change came in 1957 with the Les Paul Standard. This is where the legend really begins. They were quite heavy, but the sound these things made was heavenly. And they looked fantastic, too, with many featuring a finish known as Burst. There was Sunburst, Cherry Burst, Tobacco Burst, and so on. They also include something called a humbucking pickup, which has two coils wrapped around a magnet. This construction cancels out noisy interference, like picking up a buzz from a nearby light fixture or some other electric device. But despite the praise from many musicians, the Les Paul standard was a commercial failure. And by 1960, Gibson stopped making them. But as interest in rock grew through the 1960s, guitars started looking around for these standards made between 1958 and 1960. Only about 1,700 were ever manufactured. And today, only about 700 are known to still exist. They are sought after by collectors and are very expensive. By late 1961, Gibson started making standards again. Jimmy Page of Led Zeppelin, Keith Richards of the Stones, Billy Gibbons of ZZ Top, Jeff Beck, Slash, and many dozens of other famous guitarists play Les Pauls. And so did Steve Jones of the Sex Pistols. There are over two dozen layers of guitars on that song, and some of them, at least, feature Steve Jones playing a Les Paul standard. Like I said, though, this guitar was initially such a flop that Gibson stopped making them for a while. In 1961, Les Paul transferred his name to a new solid-body design called the SG for a couple of years until his contract with the company ran out. The SG has been in production continuously ever since. SG stands for solid guitar, and there are many, many SGs out there. They come in four variants, the cheaper SG Junior, and all the way to the deluxe SG Custom. It's hard to imagine ACDC becoming as big as they are without Angus Young playing one of these things. Players also include Tony Iommi of Black Sabbath, Eric Clapton, Pete Townsend, and Jimi Hendrix. Tom York likes the Gibson SG, and that's what he's playing on this song from the In Rainbows album. It's Radiohead and Body Snatchers. I want to talk about a few more Gibson guitars that appeared in the late 50s and early 1960s. First, the Gibson ES series. In this case, ES stands for Spanish guitar, Espain, you know. They are of a semi-holly body construction and have a curved top called an arch top. It went through a couple of dozen iterations before the company unveiled the ES-335, 
the first ever thin-line archtop semi-hollow body guitar. You can tell one of those from the F-holes it has in the front. That's a design element carried over from the ancient art of violin making. It has several variations, including the ES-345 and the ES-355. All of them were huge successes for the company. One of the biggest supporters of the ES-355 was B.B. King. Each of his 355s carried the name Lucille. Tom DeLonge used an ES-335 when he was still with Blink-182. And Noel Gallagher uses his ES-355, made in 1960, for a lot of his Oasis and solo stuff. I quote from an interview. Talk about your affinity for the Gibson ES-355. I've got two or three of them, and some ES-345s too. My 1960 ES-355 is the greatest guitar I've ever played. It can do anything, and it's become part of me. Ex-Smith's guitarist Johnny Marr, no less, picked it up in the studio and then looked like a startled wizard because of how great the guitar is. I got the 355 a while back for 4,000 pounds, and it's the best 4,000 pounds I've ever spent. I've taken the guitar on four or five world tours and beat the living daylights out of it, but it still sounds and plays incredible. I'm in awe of the guitar. I put it second to my wife, only because I can have sex with her. If I could have sex with that guitar, I'm not sure which I'd choose. Back with more on the story of the electric guitar, including a look back at the time when design ideas went wild. This is the second half of a program that tells the story of the electric guitar. As rock and roll was taking off in the 1950s, there were a number of manufacturers vying to be top dog. We've spoken about Fender with its Telecasters and Strats, and we've talked about a couple of Gibsons, the Les Paul, the SG, and the ES. Gibson was determined to capture as much market share as it could. So it started coming out with guitars with designs as radical as this new rock and roll music that was being played. And few instruments were more radical than the Flying V, which was first introduced in 1958. The body is shaped like a big V or maybe an arrowhead. It was harder to play sitting down because there was no cutout for your knee, but it did look really cool. It was the first of what was envisioned to be the company's modernist line. If you go back to the 1950s, everything had fins, rockets, cars, and now guitars. Actually, the Flying V was a little too radical. Less than 100 were sold when it debuted in 1958. Production stopped for a while, but restarted in 1967, when Gibson learned that a number of rock stars were scavenging the planet for parts for some of the Flying Vs that were being used. Dave Davies of the Kinks had one. Jimi Hendrix was known to play them. Tom Petty, Paul Stanley of Kiss, Richie Sambora of Bon Jovi, and when we got to the 80s with the spandex of hair metal, the pointy guitar from Gibson had its best years. Here's Lenny Kravitz using a flying V on Are You Gonna Go My Way? Over the video. One more Gibson guitar before we move on, the Explorer. It was released at about the same time as the Flying V, but sold even worse. It also had a radical modern design, with the body jutting out at all sorts of weird angles. Too weird, so it was discontinued after selling maybe 50 versions of the type. But when another guitar manufacturer started putting out guitars with a similar shape, 
Gibson resurrected the model in 1976. The Explorer is one of the Edge's favorite guitars of all time. His 1976 model, one of the first after Gibson started making them again, appeared during every single U2 tour until about 10 years ago when it was finally retired. It was the first guitar he ever bought. He was 17 at the time and bought it in New York, brand new, and it was the first guitar he ever recorded with. And very few people were playing Explorers when U2 emerged. It became like a visual signature, not only for just the edge, but the band. That old Explorer is all over this song. We could go on and on looking at iconic guitar brands and models. Epiphone, for example. This is a musical instrument company founded in 1873 in Turkey that started by making fiddles and lutes. The company moved to New York in 1903 and started making mandolins and then banjos. And then about 25 years later, Epiphone got into the business of making Spanish guitars. In 1935, the first Epiphone electrics went on sale. They were Hawaiian guitars. Again, that means that you play them while they lie in your lap. One of those sold for about 100 bucks back then. Spanish electrics came soon after, and Epiphone rivaled Gibson to see who could make the highest quality guitars. That was all settled when Gibson bought Epiphone in 1957 while still keeping the Epiphone name. And for a while, Epiphone became Gibson's budget brand. Epiphones made by Gibson were cheaper, but carried the same names. For example, you would have the high-end Gibson Les Paul and a cheaper Epiphone Les Paul. If you couldn't afford a Gibson ES330, well, then maybe you could scrape together the cash for a near-identical Epiphone casino. The company's biggest break came in 1964 when the Beatles broke out. John Lennon was a big fan of the Epiphone casino, and the second the Beatles appeared on The Ed Sullivan Show in 1964, orders came flooding in. Other Epiphone fans include Billy Joe Armstrong, Noel Gallagher, Paul Weller, Alex Lifeson, and Kurt Cobain. And Ezra Koenig of Vampire Weekend plays an Epiphone Sheraton 2 on this song. Vampire Weekend with Ezra Koenig playing his Epiphone Sheraton 2. We still have a few more guitar brands to go, and they're coming up next. Let's look at a few more famous guitar brands. There's Gretsch a musical instrument manufacturer that goes all the way back to a factory in Brooklyn in 1883. Friedrich Gresh, a German immigrant, began by crafting banjos and drums and tambourines. When his son took over, Spanish guitars entered the mix. The first Gretsch electric went on sale in 1939. It was called the Electromatic. But the Gretsch guitar that broke through came in 1953 and was called the Duojet. It was sort of a hollow-body guitar, but it also had sound chambers inside the body, which gave it a sound distinct from any Gibsons or Epiphones or Fenders. At first, Gretsch was big with country players. Guitarist Chet Atkins, a great finger picker, became an endorser for Gretsch and loved a model called the 6120. From there, its use spread to rockabilly artists and finally to the new rock and rollers of the late 1950s. That included Bo Diddley, who had some guitars made just for him. If you're a Beatles fan, You'll know that George Harrison played a Gretsch Chet Atkins Country Gentleman model for the group's Ed Sullivan appearance in February 1964. And again, after that broadcast, orders for those guitars blew up. Production went from 5000 a year 
to 13,000. And here's Dwayne Eddy. It's a Gretsch that gives this track so much twang. Back on part one, we talked about this next legendary guitar manufacturer and its role in the invention of the first electric guitar, Rickenbacker. As far as we know, Adolf Rickenbacker was the first to manufacture electric guitars in 1932. The company was sold in 1953, just as rock and roll was being born. The new boss dropped the old Hawaiian steel guitars and started focusing on Spanish-style electrics. John Lennon bought a Model 325 when the Beatles were playing those long residencies in Hamburg, Germany. That's the guitar 73 million people saw him play when the Beatles appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show in 1964. George Harrison was also a fan. He bought the second-ever 12-string Rickenbacker Electric ever made that same weekend when a rep from the company managed to sneak in to see the Beatles at the Plaza Hotel in New York. Later in the decade, Paul McCartney got a Rickenbacker bass, the 4001, which he used on and off for the rest of the decade. Rickenbackers have a very distinct sound. Jangle or chime are words that people use. You can pick one out immediately. You just can't mistake what George Harrison is playing for anything else. The unique sound of the Rickenbacker made it a favorite among electric folkies, British invasion bands, and those into the new psychedelic sounds of the 1960s. Think Roger McGuinn of The Birds and John Fogarty of Creedence Clearwater Revival. More recently, Rickenbackers have been used by Tom Petty, The Edge, Peter Buck of R.E.M., Susanna Hoffs of The Bangles, and Kevin Parker of Tame Impala. This is Johnny Marr of The Smiths, playing a 1983 Rickenbacker 330. It was his main guitar for years. We've talked mostly about six-string Rickenbackers and four-string basses, but then there's also the company's famous 12-string models, like the famous 360-12, which became a favorite of George Harrison. With a 12-string, you have six pairs of strings, with each string in the pair very close together and tuned to the same note, an octave apart for the four lower pairs and to the same note for the two higher ones. These pairings are called courses. No one's really sure who came up with this idea, but it is possible that 12-string guitars originated in Mexico towards the end of the 19th century. When Rickenbacker's 360-12 took off, Gibson, Gretsch, and a few others got into the game. Again, a 12-string guitar is easy to pick out. We hear Jimmy Page play a bit of it on Stairway to Heaven. Closer to the Heart by Rush features Alex Lifeson on a 12-string. Bon Jovi's Dead or Alive. And here's Jerry Cantrell playing with Alice in Chains on I Stay Away. cover a lot of ground on part three of our story of the electric guitar. Things changed both for the better and for the worse in the 1960s. The 70s and 80s saw tremendous upheaval and innovation. And we should talk about amplifiers, given that an electric guitar without amplification isn't really electric at all. 
Until then, feel free to reach out with an email to alan at alancross.ca. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And I'm always updating my website with music news and information. Check it out at ajournalofmusicalthings.com. Part three of the history of the electric guitar is coming up next time. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 